seated. We have praised our God and our Savior through song and, and through prayer. Let's bring now our just our requests and our petitions before our faithful Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you this morning for Christ. Uh, truly in him we have all that we need, all the riches of mercy and kindness that flow down to us through, through him, through his finished work. He alone is worthy of all praise and honor and glory for all things were created through him and for him. He is preeminent in all things. He is the head of the church. He is our king and our savior and our bridegroom. God, we pray for us as a local church, South Canyon Baptist Church, as a, as a gathering of disciples, we pray that you would help us to follow Christ, to listen to Christ, and to obey Christ. God, we thank you also just for giving gifts to your church, for giving people uh, who, who equip uh, the saints, who equip all of the disciples for the work of ministry in your kingdom. We thank you for giving shepherds and teachers giving pastors and elders. We thank you in particular uh, this morning for bringing Pastor James and his family here to Rapid City and to this church uh, to serve and to lead here. We pray that you would be with him uh, in the coming days and weeks, that you would guide and strengthen him in every way. We thank you also for our deacons and just for so many others who serve uh, this body to meet practical uh, needs. Uh, we thank you for our greeters, our ushers, our hospitality team, our security team, our audiovisual team, and the many, many children's ministry workers who serve uh, uh, so faithfully each Sunday. God, you have blessed us with so many people uh, who have a heart just to love and to serve this body, and we thank you for that, and we pray that this church would continue to be even more and more a place uh, just marked by love and service and discipleship, all for your glory. God, we know you are not uh, God only of this church or of this country, but you are God of the whole world, and so this morning we want to pray for the African nation of Chad and for the nearly 17 million people who live there. God, we pray that the gospel would continue to go forth and to transform lives there in that majority Muslim country. And as, uh, as there is uh, some instability and conflict there, as the military is, is in control uh, of the government and as conflict between north and south uh, persists, God, we pray that you would bring peace uh, to that place, to that region, that you would bring stability, uh, that there could be fair elections, and that religious freedom uh, could be preserved and, and even could increase there. God, most of all, we pray for the church, for the believers there in Chad, uh, along with international missionaries who work uh, there just for your help and your 
uh, divine power to, to, to reach the many, many unreached peoples who were there. Uh, for Sunni Muslims, for uh, refugees coming from Darfur, uh, for Shuwa Arabs, and for many other smaller people groups. God, uh, we pray that you would raise up more missionaries uh, to Chad and that you would bring about many conversions. We pray that churches would be planted, more churches, and that more leaders and pastors would be trained up. And we pray all these things uh, for, the, for the good and the blessing of the people there, and we pray these things for the name and the renown of Jesus Christ. And so now as we turn to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold marvelous things in your word. Help us to see, help us to know with conviction what a great God you are, what a great salvation you have provided, what a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help me to speak faithfully and with boldness. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one fascinating uh, phenomenon in pop culture, to me anyway, is, is the nicknames that fans of a, of a musician or celebrity will use in order to, to self-identify with their heroes, with their idols. Um, you know, Justin Bieber famously has uh, Beliebers. Uh, Taylor Swift has Swifties. And, and this one was new to me. Apparently, if you're a diehard Ed Sheeran fan, you demonstrate your loyalty by calling yourself a Sheerio. I'm not making this up. Now, of course, the idea really goes uh, much further back in our kind of American pop culture history. Uh, Frank Sinatra, back in his day, there were the Bobby Soxers. But the reality is the practice of, of taking on a special name in order to identify yourself with a person that you admire, you know, this really goes all the way back to the first century A.D. You know, in Antioch, Jesus' disciples were first called Christians at that time. And the label meant little Christs. It probably originated among the unbelieving public. It probably was, was meant in, in kind of a negative, uh, pejorative way. But these early followers were publicly identified in this way with their master, Jesus Christ. So I wonder, have you ever identified yourself with, with a group or a movement or, or a famous person so much that you were willing to, to take on a, a silly nickname or a label like that? How much would you have to admire a musician to, to call yourself a shirio? And how about this? Would you identify with a prominent person? Would you align yourself with them if it meant the difference between life and death? Well, that's one of the questions that we're going to be considering this morning. Just to recap where we've been, we've been preaching through uh, the book of Esther, and uh, most recently, uh, in, in the last 
last sermon we had in, in chapter 7, just to, to kind of catch ourselves up. Uh, Esther, who is the queen of Persia, she has revealed her identity, her Jewish heritage. She has pled with the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, who's, who's commonly known as Xerxes, pled with the king to spare her life and the lives of her people because there was this wicked advisor, Haman, who had written an irrevocable decree that all Jewish people should be killed on a certain day. And so the king responded to Esther's pleas with swift retribution against Haman. He's hanged on the gallows that he once intended for Esther's cousin, for Mordecai. And so now as we pick up in chapter 8, Esther is going to come back to the king again on her people's behalf with a desperate plea for deliverance. So we're going to read in Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. If you're looking for Esther in your Bible, it's, uh, it's right before Job and then the Psalms, which is kind of roughly in the middle. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. 
So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So as we're going to just kind of go through uh, this chapter, uh, section uh, by section, I have kind of three, three points we're going to be walking through. Uh, and, and really the, the summary main idea, main point uh, that's kind of serve as our guide on the outline there uh, is simply this. And this is what I believe we see in this text, what I believe we are meant to take And that is that God has raised up a deliverer and overturned the plans of the wicked. So, seek refuge with the deliverer and the deliverer's people. And read that one more time. God has raised up a deliverer and overturned the plans of the wicked. So, seek refuge with the deliverer and the deliverer's people. So, point one, God has raised up a deliverer. Uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 here. Uh, just quickly reading the first two verses, verses 1 and 2 again. Uh, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You know, at this point in the book of Esther, the reversals just keep on coming. And it's, I believe, just so evident that God has done this. You know, back in, in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, Haman was promoted and honored. And now, here in chapter 8, Esther is given his estate, all of his wealth. Uh, just like Joseph of old in the book of Genesis, Mordecai is given the king's signet ring. Uh, and just like Pharaoh told Joseph, uh, only I as king will be greater than you. So here, Mordecai's authority is second only to Xerxes. And like Joseph, Mordecai has been providentially put in this position to save God's chosen people, Israel, to save their lives. But Xerxes, his signet ring first had to be taken from Haman, the former second in command, just before his execution. And now, ironically, the king gives this ring to Mordecai, the very man Haman had so desperately sought to destroy, along with all of his people, all of the Jews. So not only is Mordecai given the the ring of power, as it were, that Haman once wore, but Mordecai also receives Haman's house, representing his estate and all his wealth. See, the, the property of a convicted criminal, such as Haman was in the end, His property belonged to the crown by rights, and so Xerxes gifted it to his queen, and she handed it over to Mordecai. Now, as we consider the rise of Esther and Mordecai as these joint deliverers that God has raised up, we really can't miss the the astounding reversal that's catapulted this, this young Jewish girl and her cousin 
these people who formerly had no great influence or position in the empire, now they're standing at the king's side. And as we'll see, they're going to be given free reign to, to operate the levers of power in order to protect their people. But there's also a, a sobering reminder that this, this swift rise of Esther and Mordecai comes at the expense of Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. You know, he was pursuing his deadly, devious plan, just full of pride and hatred. But it seemed like he had it all. Everything was going his way. But his power, his wealth, and his very life were wiped out in a matter of, of really just hours. I think it brings to mind the parable Jesus told about the rich man uh, in, in Luke chapter 12 who built bigger and bigger barns to store his excess wealth, just presuming that he was going to have many years to sit back and relax and enjoy his abundance. And yet the parable concludes with this divine rebuke. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Well, for Haman, it's his arch enemy is who is going to have all of his possessions and his title. Now, considered kind of the rise of these deliverers, let's consider the nature of the deliverer God's raised up. Now, Mordecai and Esther are kind of acting together as these joint deliverers in chapter 8, but in this next scene, it's really Esther who again plays the critical role. Uh, Look with me at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You know, Esther displays her, her deep, consuming love and concern for her people. Even though Haman has been dealt with, the threat of destruction still looms over the Jews. And Esther is determined to save her people. She doesn't hold anything back at this point. She falls at the king's feet, weeping and begging for him to do something. She asks the king to revoke Haman's decree of death. And I think importantly, she declares that she cannot bear to see the calamitous destruction of her people. Now, it almost seems that, that Xerxes is, is kind of surprised by this. Um, almost as if he replies saying, we're still talking about this? You know, you're safe, Esther. You're safe. Haman's been punished. Mordecai's been promoted. So surely that's enough. He almost seems annoyed at her, her great emotional appeal to him, responding, as it were, saying, you know, you've come out on top, so really what more do you want? See, the king assumes that Esther and Mordecai 
are as, as self-absorbed as, as he is, you know, if Esther was as self-centered as the king, then this might have just been the end of it. They're safe. They've got power. They've got wealth. But you see, as one commentator writes, even though Esther had once concealed her identity because her only thought was to protect herself, now that she had identified with her people, she had a new perspective that stretched beyond her narrow self-interests. Salvation for herself was not enough if it came without salvation for her people. And so the king responds by giving Esther and Mordecai free reign to write. Uh, The wording there is, as you please, anything they wish to counteract Haman's decree. They can write it in his name, they can seal it with his ring, and it will be irrevocable just as Haman's decree also is irrevocable. So Esther has, has won this opportunity, this chance for her people, and it's going to be up to Mordecai to finish the task. So Esther proves here to be a deliverer who's absolutely committed to saving her people. She stands really in a line of great deliverers throughout redemptive history, such as, as Joseph we mentioned earlier, who was sent ahead to Egypt in order to rescue his family from famine, from starvation. Or Moses, who, who brought Israel back out of Egypt during the Exodus. But the greatest deliverer, the one about whom all the others only provided just a hint and a mere shadow, is Jesus Christ, the deliverer that God raised up. He also came from, from humble origins, this baby born in a stable, emerging from, from the backwoods town of Nazareth, his, his parentage was a point of scandal and gossip. And yet this deliverer, God's greatest deliverer, he was not only raised up by God, he was sent by God because he was not merely a human savior, but he was God become man, the incarnate son of God. And even though he had come down from, from heaven, from unimaginable glory, in humility, Jesus Christ identified with his people, with the, the brothers and sisters God had given him. And his, his compassion, his emotional identification with his people was deep and strong. You know, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He had compassion on the sick and the demon afflicted. You know, just like Esther, Jesus loved deeply and emotionally identified with his people. Like Esther, he cared about more than his own self-interest. He interceded and pled for their deliverance. But Jesus went even further because he gave up his own life to rescue his people from the decree of death that they were standing under. And so if you're a Christian here today, we as Christians, we rejoice in this deliverer that God sent. Just like the Jews at the end of chapter 8, are going to feast and rejoice at the great deliverance brought about through Esther and Mordecai, we gather today and every Sunday to celebrate an even greater deliverance and one that came at infinitely great cost to the deliverer and one that rescues people, as we sang earlier, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And not only saving us from death, but granting eternal life. So every Lord's Day is a feast, is a celebration of our deliverance 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, do you view it that way? Do you view Sunday worship in that way? Does it feel like drudgery at times? Does it feel more like a meeting that you're obligated to attend? Or do you see it as as the, the family holiday celebration that it is? A party in the honor of the deliverer who gave everything for our everlasting joy. We celebrate because God has raised up uh, the greatest deliverer. Now, point two, as we kind of continue to move through the story here in chapter eight, point two is that God has overturned the plans of the wicked. And we see this in verses 9 through 14. And in this next section, there's, there's a lot of details about the decree and the sending out of the decree. In this next section, it's a little more challenging for us because, you know, we covered chapter 3, the other decree, Haman's decree, uh, over two months ago. And so if we were just to sit down and read all 10 chapters in one sitting, then when we get here to chapter 8, verse 9, we'd, we'd recognize how familiar this language sounds. And so just to highlight a few of these, of these parallels, you know, back in chapter 3, Haman's decree, uh, it says, in the wording says, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Here in chapter 8, it says, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month on the 23rd day. Again, in chapter 3, it says, an edict according to all that Haman commanded, was written. And then here in chapter 8, it says, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded. Again, chapter 3, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Chapter 8 says, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. All of this is intentional. The author of Esther wants us to see The parallels, the identical wording highlights the complete reversal taking place. Every detail that Haman had had designed to destroy the Jews is being systematically turned on its head. God is overturning the plans of the wicked. Now, of course, some aspects of this can be troubling to us. As we read this verse earlier, but in verse 11, Mordecai's edict says, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Now, as we consider you know, the parts of this verse that are, that are kind of troubling to our modern sensibilities, I think there are, there are three things at least that we should consider here. And first, first of all, is that this verse right here, verse 11, is the focal point of the reversal between Haman's and Mordecai's edict. It really highlights the way the first edict is being overturned and power is being given to the ones who had no power. So what, what is here? What is in the edict? What does it say? Haman's edict gave instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. 
Whereas Mordecai's edict says, uh, the edict allowed the Jews to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. So the second decree reverses the first. It does use some of those identical words. At the same time, it has significant differences. The Jews are given permission. They're allowed to gather and defend their lives, to practice self-defense. And who is this edict against? Who's covered here? Haman's edict gave instructions, not allowance, but instructions to destroy all Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. Now Mordecai's edict allowed the Jews, as we saw, to defend their lives, to destroy any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Again, many words are the same, but Mordecai's edict is for self-defense against any armed force that would attack them. So just to be clear, when it refers to women and children, these, are, these would be armed women and children who participate in attacking the Jews. So all of this similar wording highlights how each part of Haman's decree has been overturned by Mordecai's counter-decree. And yet the nature of Mordecai's decree is very different. It's not an across-the-board genocide like Haman intended, but it's legally sanctioned self-defense against an armed force that would attack the Jews. Second thing I think we should consider uh, is that the language in Mordecai's decree, and even particularly the strong and violent language in verse 11, is in fact necessary to counteract Haman's decree. You know, if, if Mordecai's irrevocable decree is to put a stop to Haman's irrevocable decree, then it needs to meet it with an equal and opposite reaction. So if Haman's decree instructs people to destroy, kill, and annihilate, and then Mordecai says, you may use appropriate means to protect yourself, there would be an imbalance. Mordecai's decree would, would have no teeth. It wouldn't have equal strength behind it. So Mordecai's edict is written as a, a deterrent. It's meant to undercut Haman's edict and, and make it nearly impossible to implement. And then the third thing that we should consider here as we think of verse 11 is that there is, there's also an element of, of holy war in play. You know, Haman, who is always referred to as the Agagite, he's representative of the, the sworn enemies of Israel throughout the ages, uh, the, the people who would seek to destroy God's people. See, King Agag was an Amalekite king who uh, God had commanded Saul, the first king of Israel, to destroy. But Saul, as God's divine agent of judgment, Saul failed to obey. And so it has fallen to Saul's descendants, to Mordecai and Esther, to face this new Amalekite, Haman. And the Amalekites themselves were the very first nation who tried to destroy the Israelites as they came out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 17. And so God had, had promised Israel he would be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. And he instructed Israel as they were entering the promised land to blot out their memory from under heaven in, in Deuteronomy 25. And so then when this new Amalekite appears, seeking to wipe out God's people yet again, 
his plan is thwarted and the destruction that he sought to bring is turned back upon those who sought to destroy the Jews. Now, even having said all that, this idea of holy war, the idea of of a nation or a group of people acting as God's agents of judgment, using warfare to destroy his enemies, we still struggle with this notion. And I think what we need to understand more than anything else is that it's the cross of Jesus Christ that brought an end to holy war in human history. See, during the time of Moses and Joshua and Saul and Esther, it was critical for God's people to be preserved because the Messiah must come through them. If Haman had succeeded unopposed, it would have marked the end of God's redemptive plan. All humanity would remain in darkness with nothing to look forward to except judgment. Because you see, every person who has ever lived is deserving of God's judgment. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are rebels. And so as a result, all stand under an irrevocable decree of death. But one commentator writes, God chose to issue a counter-decree to redeem a people out of sin and evil and into righteousness, removing them from the realm of his destruction to the realm of deliverance. And this counter-decree of redemption is only possible because God's judgment, the curse of death, fell on his one and only son. Uh, The authors Tremper Longman and Daniel Reed write in, in their book, God is a Warrior. They say, The paradox of the divine warrior is that while he fights off every effort to hijack Israel's destiny, whether from enemies without, such as Haman, or unfaithfulness within, he is also bearing the suffering of human history within himself. The God of battles carries sin and suffering with his own groans. And finally, on the cross, draws his sovereign wrath down upon himself. Holy war takes on new meaning in this light. Now that the divine warrior has become the divine wrath bearer, every person must choose either to remain standing under divine judgment or to embrace the deliverance offered through Jesus Christ. Jesus brought an end to holy war on the earth, and there's no need for anyone to remain under the decree of death. Jesus offers pardon and peace and clemency to all who will receive it. And for the church today, for Christians, our commission is not physical warfare. It's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, right? The making of disciples. And the battle takes place in human hearts. And the weapons that are used to wage that battle are are prayer and love and God's word. But we see, uh, most of all, through the work of Jesus Christ, that God has overturned the plans of the wicked. And we only need to seek the refuge that's found in him. And that's the third point here. As we conclude, seek refuge with the deliverer and the deliverer's people. 
Just read in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know, what a vivid picture of the joy and, and goodness that comes when God brings about deliverance, when, when evil is thwarted and when the right prevails, the weak and the vulnerable are protected. You know, last time we heard Mordecai's wardrobe described to us, it was back in chapter 4, after Haman's edict had come out. And then Mordecai wore torn clothes, sackcloth and ashes, and he wasn't even allowed to enter the king's gate dressed like that. But now, after this new edict, Mordecai comes out from the palace clothed in all the royal splendor of Persia. In chapter 3, after Haman's decree was issued, and the king and Haman sat down to drink wine again, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, we were told. And here, when Mordecai comes out from the king's presence, the city of Susa shouts and rejoices. And after Haman's decree, in chapter 4, among the Jews, there was great mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. But after Mordecai's decree, those, those fourfold signs of distress are now replaced with light, gladness, joy, and honor. And then lastly, the author describes how many peoples throughout the empire declared themselves Jews because fear of the Jews had fallen on them. In light of the, the fall of Haman and the, the ascent of Mordecai, in light of this counter-decree that's designed to stop Haman's decree of death, there were a lot of people who were not content to, to, to merely step back and, and quietly just leave the Jews alone. They made it absolutely clear, we're friends of the Jews. We're, we're joining them. Our loyalty, our identity is with these people, with God's people. And, and, the, and they saw this as their way to seek refuge and seek protection from judgment and from destruction. You know, the whole idea of identity has really come up a lot throughout the story of Esther. You know, initially Esther hid her Jewish identity in order to protect herself. But when disaster kind of came knocking on her doorstep, all nonetheless, she, re she realized that she needed to step forward. She needed to identify with her people and to seek their deliverance. As Mordecai challenged her, perhaps for such a time as this, you've been put into this position as queen. And then the deliverers, both Mordecai and Esther, they then openly and, and passionately identify with the Jewish people in order to rescue them. And then Esther also identifies herself with the king in, in really strategic ways. She takes advantage of her identity as queen and she makes use of the king's love and favor towards her. She turns the king against Haman 
and she elicits the king's sympathy for the plight of her people. And so as a result of that, identifying with the king, she and Mordecai can act in his name and with his authority to counteract Haman's decree. And then in the end, who would have imagined this to be possible? Peoples from throughout the known world identified with Mordecai and Esther, identified with God's people because they stood in awe of their power and influence. Perhaps some recognize the hand of God in raising them up. So Christian, is your identity grounded in Christ, in the Deliverer? You know, we all have many identities that, that vie for our loyalty and for our affection. Maybe it's the identity of our family. Uh, maybe it's, it's nationality or a political party. Maybe you're tempted to base your identity on being a good student or an athlete or a leader or, or, or seen as a pillar in the community. But Christian, no other identity can, can sit at the center of your life or my life. Our identity is as, as one who belongs to Christ, one who bears his name. No, no other identity can bring us satisfaction. No other identity can protect us, can offer us true refuge from the storms and the trials of life. And here's another question. Do you find your identity with the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, and also with the Deliverer's people? Because, you know, the church is Christ's bride. And it's within the community of his people that we publicly identify ourselves as Christians through baptism. And we encourage one another to press on in that identity. And we regularly renew our identities through, through the Lord's table together. And so Christian, seek to cultivate your affection and your loyalty to God's people within a local church. Don't allow your love for one another to grow cold. And if you're here today and you're not a believer or you're not sure, uh, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for, for, for being with us today. But I want to ask you as well, where do you find your identity? You know, the world tries hard to convince all of us to seek identity in our own self through self-expression and individuality. But see, here's the fact. Our self-expression has led each and every one of us to rebel against the God who created us and to fall under his just judgment. So our own individualistic pursuits, no matter how noble or virtuous they might be, they can never lead us to safety. The only refuge is the deliverer God has given. The only safety is found through identifying with the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, and with his people. If you've never done that before, I would urge you to do it today and come and talk to me or one of the elders here, and we'd love to continue conversation of what it means to identify with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 
your word. We thank you for this story of Esther uh, and the deliverance uh, that took place uh, so, uh, so long ago. And yet, uh, we just, we see your providence, your sovereignty, that you work in history, that you had a plan for, for Israel, you had a plan to send your son for the joy and the salvation and the rescue of many, many people. We uh, rejoice today. We celebrate in the deliverance that Jesus has accomplished for us. We pray that that would be uh, where we base uh, our lives on the foundation of Jesus and his work, and that it would be our identity centered on him that others would see us and see how we love one another and see how we follow after Christ and they would recognize his stamp on our lives. And God, we pray all these things uh, for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.